Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4 again as we continue with the conversation Jesus is having with the woman at the well in Sychar of Samaria. Let's pray and then we will jump into our text this morning. Lord, help us now as we come before this your word, even as the conversation begins around your revelation, what you have said. Make it abundantly clear to us this morning, Lord. May your word pierce our hearts. May the Spirit of God take the word that he has written and place it into our minds so that we know into our hearts so that we will love and into our will so that we may follow Jesus. Bless now your word, Father, we pray. Use it to your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 4, verses 19 through 26. You'll remember that Jesus has just stated to the woman he knows how many husbands she has had and that the man whom she is now treating as her husband is not actually her husband, thus revealing her sin. The woman responds in verse 19 and she says this. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speaks to you am he. Truth, when it comes, is always a a blinding proposition. Truth is one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's pervasive. It it penetrates everything about your life. Think about light. You walk into a dark room. You turn on the light. That light is a blinding proposition, isn't it? In a split second, you go from not knowing what is in that room to knowing what is in that room. Not only do you know what's in the room, you know where things are in the room. So that if you were to have to get up in the middle of the night and face the darkness again, you might successfully navigate without stubbing your toe into the furniture that someone has kindly rearranged. The light has revealed that and for all time it is now seared into your mind what is in there where it is at, how you can navigate that. You not only see the the facts of what is there, but you see the hues and the colors and the things that make that room what it is. And what Jesus has done for this woman at the well of Samaria in the preceding verses over the last couple of weeks is exactly that. Jesus comes 
Jesus arranges this providential meeting with this woman and His light has now penetrated her darkness so that not only her, but her entire village will never be the same because the One who is Himself light has come. And He has blinded the eyes. You you can't, after Jesus is finished with her, she'll never be able to live life the same, nor will anyone else in that village, as we shall see in the coming weeks. Oh, as the narrative begins, it appears that Jesus is going to have a polite and cordial conversation with her about the subject of physical water. And that conversation then led to talk about spiritual need. Eternal and living water of a spiritual nature that never leaves one thirsty or lacking. And now, this conversation takes an abrupt turn. And we go from talking about physical water to spiritual water now to talking about worship. It may seem a bit disjointed to us the way this conversation is being redirected. and It may seem confusing and out of joint and perhaps even intentional on her part to have her sins unmasked and now to want to start to parse words about the tedium of worship. Is it that place or is it this place? But it's not. It's a continuation of all that Jesus has been saying up to this point. It's connected, and inseparably so, to all of what has immediately preceded it. Nor do I really believe that it is a tactic on the part of this woman to distract Jesus away from what He's doing. It may look that way, but upon further review and investigation, I don't believe that it is. Rather, in verse 19, this woman is exhibiting a response to Jesus that is based upon her knowledge of the Old Testament, at least part of the Old Testament, the the first five books of the Old Testament. And the confusion that she has is because of a particular interpretation that has been handed down to her, a particular tradition. And this man, because he seems to be a man of authority, and after all, if he's a man who knows what all she has done out of sight, then certainly he knows the right interpretation of what she may be confused about. And so Jesus, for his part, here in the verses this morning, clears up three matters of revelatory importance of eternal significance and so i want you to see these three matters this morning that jesus clears up for her and actually clears up for us as well in verses 19 and 20 we see the matter of truth revealed the matter of truth revealed notice what she says you sir i perceive that that you are a prophet our father's Worshipped in this mountain, the one you're sitting on, is the place of our worship. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So, Jesus, which is it? Is it my tradition or yours? Is it my interpretation or yours? Which is the correct one? Now, what will become clear about this woman is that she is not unfamiliar with nor unskilled in her interpretation of the first five books and as i mentioned earlier the samaritans didn't deny the old testament they fully accepted the first five books as inspired and uh, applicable to their lives but they rejected everything that came after and so jesus in speaking to her now opens the door and two things occur when he does Two things happen in this narrative. Two things begin to develop that Jesus intends to develop. These are not accidental explorations and streams of consciousness that just, you know, as Bob Ross, the painter, would say, are happy accidents. Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's leading the witness, as it were. 
And the door as it opens, two things become clear. And the first is this. As she confesses to Jesus in verse 19, you do what only two people could do. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know all of my sin. You know my history. You know, no doubt, if you can discern those things, you can know the heart. And there are only two people that could do that. You are either a prophet on the order of Moses, or you are the Messiah. There's only two options in her mind. You are either one or the other without having ever been through town as a visitor, without the advent of social media that people air their entire life story on, he is able to piece together and reveal her past. And with it, he gives the stinging diagnosis of law that has been broken. Now again, remember, she is quite familiar with the law. And as we enumerated last week, it isn't that she has simply lived in adultery. She has stolen from others what was not hers. She has envied what others had and wanted it for herself. On and on we could go. This woman knows the stinging diagnosis that only a prophet or God Himself could bring such weight to bear upon her without knowing her. The second thing that becomes clear is this. Jesus reveals that while the first of those options is true, that is, He is a prophet, it is not enough. It's not simply enough to look at Jesus and say, wow, what a great prophet. That's what Islam does. He wants her to go further than that and He will lead her to an understanding that what He is is more than just a prophet. You're not wrong. You're just not right. I am a prophet. They know that the Samaritans know well Moses. He is their hero. He is the author of those first five books of the Bible. And they are keen to uh, look to Moses as the standard for a prophet. And so in the Samaritan mind, no one could be greater than Moses except God. In fact, Deuteronomy 34.10 is where they would go to Understand that truth, Deuteronomy 34.10, Since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. There'd been no one like Moses, and the one who would come after Moses would have to be this man known as Messiah to the Jews or to the Samaritans, Tahib. The restorer, or he who has come back, the word means. So she understands that there's not been one up to her lifetime who has been as great as Moses was in communicating the revelation of God. And she understands this as well from Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 15, that the Lord your God will, some point in the future, raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your countrymen, and you will listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall, not, or it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my word, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Get the picture. The people of God are around the mountain, and they see the thunderings, and they hear the, the, the voice of God, and they are terrified, and they beg God, Don't say any more. We can't handle it. We will die if you speak to us. And God says, you're right. So I'll send one greater than Moses. One who will speak my words. But he will speak to you. And he will be with you. And you will hear him and you will not die. In this moment, this woman sitting at a well side 
a woman who is not a PhD in theology, who is not schooled or well-versed or well-taught or well-learned in the academic sense of learning, instead is so plagued by guilt and sin and shame. And yet she undertakes a greater theological consideration than perhaps she realizes. She is starting to put pieces together that the guys down at the seminary aren't quite connecting yet. Wait a minute, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, and I remember there is going to come a prophet to us, one like Moses and yet greater than Moses, a a holiness about him that doesn't consume us like God on the mountain, yet he will speak to us and we will hear him. I remember that. And yet, here you are sitting here telling me all the things that I've ever done, some of which no one else knows about, but me, the other individual involved, and now you. And so I believe that here in this text, in verse 19, this woman is beginning to come to grips with what is happening. What is being fulfilled right in front of her. If there was no greater prophet than Moses, and the next to follow Moses in such a stature would be the prophet then who are you? Who are you? Again, as I said, she's connecting dots better than most theologians in Jesus' day. The guys down at the synagogue, the guys down in Jerusalem, they're not getting it. That's what his conversation with Nicodemus is all about. Nicodemus is the most learned man of the learned men, and he doesn't get it. And yet here is this broken woman sitting by a well, plagued by guilt, plagued by sin, and she's connecting dots. Simple revelation from the Old Testament, she is seeing it. She is reckoning uh, with truth that she can't unsee. This is going to change her forever. This is something so unusual. Unlike the The philosophers and the theologians, they remain blind, yet she begins to see. She's starting to understand that she is not in the presence of a man, not in the presence of merely another prophet, but in the presence of the prophet. Now, this may sound greatly intimidating to a woman whose every sin is now being unmasked and laid bare in front of this stranger. But I would submit to you this morning, there is no better place for a sinner to be unmasked than in the presence of Jesus. There is no better place to have your sin revealed than at the feet of Him who can deal with your sin. And so she comes and she's not only discovering the identity of Jesus, she is discovering that there is no safer, better place to have this sin so exercised from her than right there in His presence. Listen, her flesh, nor yours, nor mine, would ever choose what is going on here. No one would choose in and of themselves to walk into God's presence and say, okay God, tell me everything I think. Put it out there for everybody to know. Let's just lay it all out. Nobody does that, do we? We, we? we love our sin and we hate the light and no man comes to the light. Why? We've already learned this from John in chapter 3. Why? Because our deeds are evil. But aren't you glad Jesus doesn't ask you, hey, would you go flip the light switch on? And let's meet. Jesus sets it up. Jesus comes to her. Jesus seizes the initiative. She will never go confess to anyone what she is, so Jesus comes and draws it out of her. Jesus goes and ministers to her. Jesus sets the time of the appointment. Jesus sets the way in which 
her sin will be revealed, but not only her sin, but himself revealed. She's still trying to, no doubt, come to terms with the reality of what is occurring in her life. No doubt she's still wrestling with it. And so that's what makes her question a little odd. This question about worship, it it, it does seem a little out of place, you have to admit. We're talking about adultery after all, and now you want to talk about where the right place to worship is? Is she trying to sideline Jesus? Is she trying to distract Jesus? Is she mocking Jesus? Is she accusing Jesus of something? Is she an antagonist? Or is she one willing to learn? I think it's the latter. She wants to know. She she has had the most embarrassing and hurtful and guilt-filled thing about her already put out. Jesus has already mentioned that. And so she is just going to take the conversation further. It's almost a testing, if you will, that she gives to Jesus. If, and I repeat, if, He is the Tahib, if He is Messiah, or as the Jews are hoping for God, a very God in human flesh, if that's who He is, then He will be able to settle this dispute. And it's not that she's so much, I don't think, interested in where she's supposed to go to worship on the Lord's Day. I think she is genuinely understanding that if this man is who he says he is, or at least acts like he is, then he will answer this question. And if he can do that, then that has a plethora of implications. Notice what she says. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She understands that that, that place does matter. And, and, And I don't want to belittle that. God has a theology of place. There's there's importance to locations throughout Scripture. And so she she understands that. She grasps that. She understands Deuteronomy 12.5, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. And there you shall come. So God is not unconcerned with where we go. And so this woman's question is not completely off base, and yet it's going to lead us further down the path. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and yet you people, it's, 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 almost a, it's almost a derogatory tone. We say it's here, and yet you people say that it's in Jerusalem. The, the divide is sharp. It's there. It's out in the open. So why would she reason that her fathers were right? Why is she confused? Well, she's confused because she has done one thing that none of us should ever do, and that is to reject any part of God's revelation. She was willing to accept the first five books of Scripture, but she refused to take any of the rest of the Old Testament, which would have helped her understand the right place. But she ignores that part. It's irrelevant to her. And so for them, worshiping at Mount Gerizim seemed to be the right thing to do. And if you stopped after the first five books of the Old Testament, you would probably draw the same conclusion. Deuteronomy 11.29, It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess it, that you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal, what God had the nation of Israel read the law. And the blessings on one side are shouted from Mount Gerizim where they're sitting now, and the curses are shouted from Mount Ebal. So what perfect place, what better place than the Mount of Blessing? To add to that, in their translation 
of the Samaritans Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They added things at the end of the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, that seemed to indicate that the law was given there on Mount Gerizim. And so the very law itself is married to this mountain in their mind. And so what better place to worship God? This is where he has met with his people before. This is where he's given his revelation and his law and where he has promised his blessing. The Jews, however, or in her words, you people, have worshipped in Jerusalem. Why? Because that is the place that David intended to build the temple, that God gave Solomon permission and ability to do so, and where Zerubbabel would rebuild the temple after its destruction. Jerusalem was God's ideal place, but they wouldn't have known that because they cut that part of their Bible out. And again, the place is not unimportant because in the Old Testament, you didn't find God indwelling His people as He does in the New Testament and and everywhere uh, ministering as He did in the temple, in the tabernacles. He only dwelled in the Holy of Holies. He met with His people there, and so finding the right place is, in a sense, especially at this time, critically important. Well, Jesus, we worship here. You people and your people worship there, which is right. It's a matter of revelation. Our Bible says this, your Bible says that. You say this, I say that. So which is it? It's a matter of revelation. Jesus eventually is going to shatter her concept of her revelation. But first he must get to something else, and that is the matter of truth's effect. The Word of God rightly understood, the light of God's Word rightly understood has an effect. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming. When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus first beckons this woman to give assent to the truth. He then calls her to submit to the truth. He says, first of all, believe me. And then believing me, I want you to submit to what you say you believe. You know, it reminds me of Jesus' words at the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus is preaching and Jesus is giving that fantastic sermon. And He says, you've heard that it has been said, but I say to you. It's almost like that here. Woman, you've heard it, but believe me. What I'm about to tell you takes precedent and preeminence over what you think You've heard because truth will have an effect upon you. Jesus says the hour is coming. He, he speaks with a, like a prophet does with eschatological or future ramifications. There is something big around the corner. And we all know that feeling. We, we anticipate big events in our lives, don't we? The birth of a child... A, a surgery that's we, we know what it's like when that anticipation for something future builds and jesus is building that for her here he's reminding her there is an hour coming a climax an apex to something and, and jesus is not uh, not vague about what that is notice what he says an hour is coming when worship either here or jerusalem is irrelevant whoa Jesus, I just asked you where to go. I didn't ask you to blow the thing up. And now you're telling me it doesn't matter. You're telling me that there's coming a point when when it's not going to matter. Well, this is far outside the bounds of what I asked for. I didn't pay for this. It's a time most critical that is forthcoming. And the ramifications are this. Not only does it affect the place that you worship, it will affect the relationship to God that you have. 
Because in telling her the place will no longer be relevant, it will essentially cease to exist, he's just taken away both a Samaritan's confidence and a Jew's confidence in their ability to be right with God. He is absolutely destroying the wrong thinking of both Jews and Samaritans now. Where are you going to be then, dear lady, in the final analysis? You have to feel for the poor woman at this point. She has got to be so absolutely confused. (laughs) I came and I asked you about a place, and now you're saying places... There's coming an hour where that's not going to be factoring in at all. It's going to be a monumental time, dear lady, in which everything that has mattered will no longer matter. A time when the light of truth is flipped on and all of that is seen for what it is. This debate between your people and my people is going away. Now I want you to notice something interesting. Go down to verse 27. Notice who's not here at the moment. The disciples. You think that's unintentional? That is absolutely intentional. Can you imagine saying that in front of Peter? Have you ever had one of those conversations where it's, a, it's actually a very serious conversation and somebody walks up and they just blow the whole thing up with some ill-timed comment and you're just going, why did you come along right now? just totally destroys everything that you just laid. Yeah, I can see Peter doing that here, can't you? Whoa, what do you mean there's going to come a time when Jerusalem doesn't matter anymore? They would have turned on Jesus, but Jesus again in His providential care for this woman's soul and wanting to minister to her, made sure that the disciples were, here, take some money and go buy food. Get out of my hair for a little while. I've got an important conversation I need to have. He's alone with this woman. He is delivering very difficult truth both to her and for the Jews. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Father may have prescribed a place appropriate for the past, But moving into the future, he will no longer be satisfied with merely a place. Why? Because the light of truth is shown. It it bears an effect. It, it, It illuminates things that had only been intended to be a shadow. It, it lights them up. It, exposes what is real. I want you to notice that Jesus does not eliminate worship. Jesus says, doesn't say, hey, worship doesn't matter anymore. That's not what He's saying. Jesus isn't saying that regulation of worship doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't say that. Rather, He informs what true worship is. He informs what true relationship to the one we worship really is so there will be a correct and an incorrect way to worship the father he's not saying that anything will now go but the pivotal change is going to be this the truth is going to come and it's going to turn on the light and it's going to eliminate or i'm sorry illuminate the truth and settle the debate in this woman's mind once and for all and it will not be until the end of this part of the conversation that we understand what that light is really going to do. In verse 22, look there, Jesus gets straight to the heart of the matter. You've heard of worship wars? What's the right way to worship God? And there's all kinds of debates about that. Next time you get in one of those conversations with somebody, imagine saying this to them. You worship what you don't know. Let's translate that into really clear West Texas parlance. You're ignorant. Excuse me? 
Those are charged and heated debates anyway. Imagine saying that. You don't even know what you worship. You, you, you are worshiping, as Murray Harris says, in abstract thought. You're worshiping something. You just don't know what it is, dear lady. It's subjective. It lacks reality. You worship what you do not know. Now, here's the interesting thing. It is not the Greek word used here for intellectual knowledge. They had facts. Rather, Jesus uses the word for experiential knowledge. You worship something you really have no experience with knowing. You don't really know the truth. The truth has eluded you so far. You're worshiping something, but it's in the abstract, and you've not really connected with the light of truth in your worship. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, there's a verse like that that sounds awfully familiar in Acts 17 with the Apostle Paul. You remember that episode. The Apostle Paul goes to Athens and he stands among the Stoics and the Epicureans and the philosophers of the day. And he says in verse 22, Men of Athens, I observe that you are all very religious in all respects. So was this Samaritan woman to some degree or another. Paul goes on, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul goes on to preach Jesus to them. That This woman is in the same boat. She's worshiping in the abstract. She's worshiping what she doesn't really grasp or understand. But Jesus goes on to say, you don't know what you worship we, however, worship what we know. Because we, we, we have a higher value of revelation. We, we include what, all of what God has included. And so we worship in a more informed manner. And here is what we discover in our worship, dear lady. In the worship of, of God's revelation. Remember, it's a matter of revelation that's foundational here. He says, and what we discover is this, salvation is from the Jews. It's not about going through the ritual of worship. It's not about do this, don't do this. It's not about tradition. It is about this, salvation will come out of the Jews. And in a blinding flash, this woman grasped that what they have been talking about the whole time isn't water. And it's not just to accuse her of her sin. And it's not even about worship. It is about salvation. Now it becomes clear. Now we see where Jesus is headed with the conversation. Now we see what Jesus really wants to do. And He's been doing that since verse 7 when He meets her for the first time. Everything Jesus does, everything Jesus came to do in this Samaritan town boils down to one thing. Salvation that is from the Jews. Just as it was with Nicodemus. Just as it is with everybody who Jesus meets. It is about salvation. His coming is a corrective to everything else. His coming is to align our sight with His salvation. It is to bring us in submission to God's perfect revelation of His Son that we might be saved. And so let me just say this to you as a Christian. If your Christianity, like this woman's religion or even the disciples' religion, is about anything other than than salvation in Jesus Christ, you need corrective lenses this morning. Jesus is about salvation. It's not about all the, the ancillary things that go along with Christianity. 
It's not about all the ancillary things that go along with the church. It is about Christ and the salvation that Christ brings. And in a moment, He narrowly focuses this down and says, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know, and here is the distillation of that. Here's what comes out at the end of that. Jesus saves. The prophet will be sent to save. Not just to further worship in Jerusalem. So many in our own day, just as perhaps in this woman's thinking, act as though worship is something that's conducted once a week. Conducted according to our preferences and personal interpretation. And Jesus says, you don't get it. It's about salvation. It's about who I am. It's not about your experience. It's not about how you feel. It's about God rescuing sinners. Now notice something about this prophet that was prophesied in the very beginning. Something this woman would have been well familiar with. In Genesis 3.15, God made the first promise that what He would be about from that time forward, from the fall onward, He would be about redemption. That, that Eve would... would Eventually, her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And then in, in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, who God promises to make of him a great and mighty nation, says it won't just be for you and your descendants, Abraham. That will become an, a, a less and less relevant thing. Because here's the thing that really matters. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. It will work out through the Jews. And that is what Jesus is saying here. I am that fulfillment. Let's continue on. Lastly, there is the matter of the author. The matter of the author of truth. In verses 23 and 26. Jesus now goes back to where He began. He goes back to help clarify the thinking even more. And he said, no, I told you that there was an hour coming. As human history reached an apex, I'm telling you there was an hour coming. Dear lady, let me tell you this. An hour is coming, and it now is. The thing that matters most is right here in front of you. This is God's final, final. This is the ultimate of God's revelation as we read in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. It is the ultimate revelation. God, in many ways and through divers' manners in times past, spoke through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us through One who is His Son. There's no revelation past this. This is it. And Jesus says to her, Dear lady, it is now. What definitive words Jesus says. How boldly He speaks. How truthfully He speaks. How much light He sheds into this lady's thinking. Jesus is not saying that the fullness of the kingdom has come. We haven't missed it, don't worry. We're 2,000 years past this, we haven't missed it. But he is saying that this central part has appeared and that central part is this. Salvation. Salvation. Redemption from sin. And it would flow from God through a person, not a system, not a place, not a temple, not a building, not a mountain. It will come through a person notice what he says an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for such people the father seeks to be his worshipers jesus now moves from water to spiritual condition to worship to salvation, to who God is. 
His person and His presence must become the supreme thing in her mind. He must reveal who He is to her. He must reveal the way to the Father, to her, just as He did with Nicodemus. Notice what He says, that that an hour is coming and now is, when true worshipers, now there, that, that tells you one thing, there is a true worship, there's a false worship. And that matters. And he says those who are true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and truth. There's been a lot of debate about that. What does it mean to worship in the spirit? I won't take the time this morning to enumerate all of the wonky things that we've all heard about that. You probably have some of those running through your mind now. But there is sufficient evidence to simply say this at the beginning. There is an acceptable way and an unacceptable way to worship the Father. And it has to be both by spirit and by truth. Now I want you to notice this. These are not two different categories. There are not people who say, listen, I don't, I don't really get into the truth thing. I'm just all about the spirit. And it's not, well, you know, it doesn't matter about the Spirit. We're only about the facts, ma'am, and just the facts. Jesus says, if you're going to be a true worshiper, you must worship in Spirit and truth. To, 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 to make the point clear and to put a fine point on it, there is only one preposition that modifies both of those words, in Spirit and truth, not in Spirit and in truth. That would mean two different things. But Jesus says they're one thing. And they're inseparably linked. Now I want you to notice something else that's interesting here. And this woman, oh, doesn't she know this? He says, for such people the Father seeks. The Father seeks. They don't seek Him. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. If you are right with God, it's because God came and sought you. This woman knows that. She didn't go to the well looking to be right with God that day. But God decided it was time for her to be right with Him, and so He met her. He sought her. Jesus said, I came to seek And to save that which was lost. Why? For the purpose of worship. The Father seeks worshipers. Why does God save anybody? You ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why God saves anybody? Because He desires worship. And He is worthy of worship. And He must redeem in order that we can worship because we are fallen and we would not worship Him. We would not seek Him. God isn't taking applications for those who want to worship Him. He's coming to find you. He sent His own Son into the world to seek and to save those who are lost. He's not sitting there wondering why no one has responded to the help wanted sign. Because he knows no one in their sin will search out a holy God. So he comes to us. And he comes to us and he offers this ability to worship him in spirit and truth. So we must ask the question, what does this look like? What does this look like? Look at verse 24. Here's what it looks like. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must, must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to understand this is who God is. Jesus says you must worship in spirit and truth. And oh, by the way, God is spirit. What are we to make of this? What 
what is meant by these often confusing words. Well, first of all, let me say this, that the text does not say God is a spirit. It says he is spirit. There are some older translations that put an article in there where there should not be an article. It doesn't exist in the original manuscripts. God is spirit. To say he is a spirit is to communicate that he is one of many when he is not. He is the spirit. What what does it mean that God is spirit? Well, when we go back to the Old Testament again, Jesus is going to appeal to something that she is going to understand, that she can grab hold of. And he's not going to go to Paul's letters, and he's not going to go to even later Old Testament writings. He's going to stay right where she understands. He's going to put it on the bottom shelf for this lady. Because to understand God as spirit is to understand this, that to be spirit means he is a life-giving spirit. In Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed. It's the same word, spirit. He gave life to man and man became a living being. Why? Because God, who is spirit, breathed what he was into man so that man would become as he was and that is living in genesis 6 3 the lord said my spirit shall not always strive with man forever because he also is flesh nevertheless his day shall be 120 years god is saying my life is not like man's life how does he communicate that in the word spirit job 33 verse 4 and this is later But the Spirit of God, Job said, has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. What does God being Spirit mean? It means He is life. In Genesis chapter 1, it is the Spirit of God that hovers over the face of the waters, creating all that would be. God is a life-giving Spirit. God is a revealing Spirit. What happens when God breathes out? Revelation happens. Truth happens. Light happens. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God. The better, and it's not as pretty, but the literal reading is this. All Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When God speaks, there is revelation. And he says, God is spirit, dear lady. God is life-giving and God is revealing. And there is only life when God breathes life. The spirit gives life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 2. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, becomes a life-giving spirit. Dear lady, worship consists of this, that God seeks you, and when God finds you, God breathes life into you. So it's not about a mountain. It's not about a mountain. It's not about a system. It's not about a system. It's about God who comes near as spirit. And when his spirit breathes, there is life. There is no other way to come to the Father. Jesus will go on to say in this very, very gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because I'm spirit. Spirit is truth. Spirit is life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. The satisfying drink you've been looking for, ma'am, is that which is spirit and life. Spirit and truth. What grace God gives. 
what grace God gives. He gives truth to reveal sin. He gives life. Eternal life that forgives sin. You desire to worship me, he's saying in essence, you won't do it here. You want to worship the Father, you won't do it here. You will only do it through me. The Father's worship cannot be restrained to something as simplistic as your buildings or your mountains. The Father's worship must be in spirit and truth. Life. Life through me. When we go to Hebrews, as as Daniel did this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, worship isn't a place. Worship occurs through a person. I will proclaim your name. This is Jesus speaking. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. You want to worship God, then you have to do it through me. Spirit and truth. It's easy to get lost in a place It's easy to get lost in a pattern. It's easy to get lost in the things we do and then call it worship. But that is not what worship is at all. Worship is Christ. And it must be in Him and through Him. He is from the Jews. He is the salvation of the Jews that He spoke of. He must be the source of our worship, both by breathing life into us that we are living enough to worship and then giving us the truth for worship. His disciples, this woman, have lived lives of unconscious going through motions. And he is saying, now that I'm here, that all stops. Brothers and sisters, as believers this morning, attempts to worship God without a conscious dependence upon Jesus means that we are as lost as this Samaritan woman. If you came here this morning and your focus and your desire and your avenue to the Father was not consciously through the Son, then what we did didn't matter. It is only as it is through Christ. We look at John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We think, well, we prayed the prayer. We accepted what Jesus did as our Savior. Now we just go on and live without Him. Not true. You want to worship the Father? You've got to come through the Son. He is life and He is truth. According to Hebrews 2, He is the one leading us in worship before the Father. Why did you come to church today? What was your mindset as you sang? What is your mindset now as you're listening? Is it Christ? Is it Christ? Is He all of your dependence this morning? Did you come because you like the way we sing? Or you like the format that we do it in? don't, Don't come for those reasons. Come for Christ. Not that those things aren't important, they are, but they're not near as important as Christ. Is He all of your dependence? Is He all of your awareness? Verse 25. Now I know, she says, I know, I know. Now notice the switch. I know that Messiah is coming. Now she's switched to being a convert to Judaism. She's not talking about her Samaritan religion anymore. She's just going to appeal to Jesus on the basis of Jewishness. No, I know. I, I, can, I could go either way here. You know? I'm a bifurcated worshiper. I can be Samaritan when I need to. I can be Jewish when I need to. I know, you people, that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. And when He does, then He'll tell us which is really right. And then we hear these astounding words. 
we hear these astounding words as Jesus concludes the passage. And these are words, loved ones, that have not been uttered since Genesis chapter 3. Long has the earth waited to hear these words. Long has it been since God walked in the garden with man in the cool of the day. Long because of sin has there been separation between God and man. Long has it been that man could enter the presence of God and not be consumed by His holy wrath. And the woman says, you know, I know someday Messiah is going to come and God's going to be here on earth with us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are involved in creation, the creation of physical Adam, and then communed with Adam and walk with Adam, and we're the source of Adam's life and the source of Adam's truth. So now here am I. I'm in your presence. And I am He. And through me you will worship. For I am life and I am truth. And you'll go back to the Father just as Adam and Eve were. This time, unlike Adam, there's no need for you to run and try to hide your sin, lady. No, don't waste your time with poorly sown fig leaves. Don't waste your time with animal sacrifices in a temple on some mountain. Don't waste your time with all the entrapments that you think worship consists of. Rather, do this. Know that I am He. Focus in the man. Christ Jesus. The man at the well. The man who sits before you now. I know your sins. I've already told you that, but I'm here for your salvation. I'm here to give you life that you do not have. I'm here to show you truth you do not know. I am He. The blinding light of revelation has now come on. What she has seen, she can never unsee. What has been spoken to her cannot help but to affect her forever now. And we find that to be true, don't we, in verse 29. Come see a man. Come. He didn't destroy me. He knows, but He didn't condemn. He offered salvation instead. He offered spirit and truth. Come see. Now I want to just tease this just a little bit. Look at verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified. You see what happens when you understand what it's really all about? It didn't just affect her. It affected her whole town. And many believed because of her testimony. A testimony of spirit and truth given because God sought her to be His worshiper. What's your worship like? Is it lacking? Go to the well. Jesus is still there. Spirit and truth are still there. Is it non-existent? You don't know God at all? Go to the well. Jesus is there. I've never been forgiven of sin. I'm carrying the guilt like this woman to go to the well. There's truth and life there. Forgiveness of sin. God Himself is there. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace to us.
grace so abundant in this passage. Seal it to our hearts, Lord. May we focus upon what needs to be focused upon. Lord Jesus, may we find our rest, as the hymn said this morning, find our rest in You. Holy Spirit, draw men and women and boys and girls to the Lord Jesus this morning. Give them a glimpse of who He is and the hope that they can have in Him. That they might be forgiven of their sins by believing in who He is and what He did for them on the cross and at the empty tomb. And then cause us to go and tell. Go and plead. Come see a man. Come see the embodiment of spirit and truth. We pray this in Christ's name.